that out there and what we actually do? I was thinking what a different question that is for many that we would find in Vancouver today where many people have grown up in a very secular context, uh, have no presumptions that there is such a thing as eternal life, have no awareness that what we do has any kind of bearing on that apparently mythical concept called eternal life, and how they would ask the question today. And I think probably the question asked today by one of those such people would be, what's the point? Right? That's more the question. What's the point of anything? But this question, being asked by this uh, expert in the law, uh, comes actually within a frame of scholarly discussion uh, that Jesus was quite familiar with. And Jesus responds to it by asking two questions of his own. What is written in the law, he asks, and how do you read it? Now, in, in, in replying like this, Jesus stood firmly within the tradition of scholarly discussion of, the, of his day. He is asking, first of all, how the questioner reads the Torah for himself. Now, the scribes and the Torah scholars love nothing better than to engage in the intellectual challenge of trying to synthesize and summarize the essence of the teaching of the five books of Moses, which they knew as the Torah. So the legal expert was actually quite well prepared to answer this question. And his response is to quote two key verses from the Torah. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which follows a recapitulation of the Ten Commandments. The second, slightly more obscurely, is taken from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and is the instruction to love your neighbor as yourself. But put together, they lay out a comprehensive summary of the law in its entirety. So, this was actually quite a, a challenge and quite a feat to, 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 to bring all that stuff, which you can read in those first five books of uh, the Bible that we have, and you know it's long, there's lists, so there's do this, don't do that, all that kind of stuff. So to bring it all down to these two concepts, love God like crazy and love your neighbor as yourself, was quite a statement. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus looks at him, perhaps with a smile, and says... You have answered correctly. In other words, bang on. That's it. You got it. That means that Jesus actually agreed with him. Right? Jesus, we believe Jesus was the Son of God come to the earth to show us about life and how to live. And here he is looking at an ordinary human an expert in the law, who's had the book, who's figured it out, has understood it, and he says to him, you are right, correct. That's pretty amazing. And then, and this is the important bit, he says, 
do this and you will live. And I think the emphasis here is on the do, right? Do this and you will live. The danger for the intellectual approach to Scripture is that it all happens in the head. Figure it out, get it right, get those pieces right. But Jesus says to him, do it. Do it and you will live. Live that way in complete love of God and complete love of your neighbor. And you will find your way into the life that God has prepared for you that goes on forever. Doing and knowing the right thing to do are not always the same thing, are they? But here's Jesus pointing it out, making it clear, do it and you will live. Now, we're not quite sure what the expert was hoping for, but I, I have a hunch that he wanted a little deeper discussion. He liked those scholarly discussions. That's what he'd been trained for, and maybe he hadn't got enough ammunition if he was looking for ammunition to get at Jesus with that little exchange that he'd had. And we're told that he wanted to justify himself which may mean that he wanted a bit of a deeper engagement. I, I, I don't know. But he, he pushes back with a question, and it's an interesting question. And he asks the question, and who exactly is my neighbor? And of course, that is a very important question. Because defining who our neighbor is narrowly we could say, well, the neighbor is the person who lives in the house exactly next to you or the per and the person who lives on the, the house the other side and perhaps the person over the road. But that's it. Those are your neighbors. Define it nice and narrowly like that. And life is going to be fairly simple. I have six or seven people to pour my love and care out for. Uh, I can try to do that. I could ignore my responsibility to the rest of the world, and life is pretty good. I will get on, right? That's the narrow definition of neighbor. The trouble comes if we go for a broad definition of neighbor. Wow, our lives could be full of trying to care for our neighbors. If our neighbors are anyone in need, anyone out there, anyone who's in trouble, anyone in the city who's not doing well, gosh, where could this end? And whether that distinction had crossed the expert in the law's mind, we don't know, but possibly. Was he looking for a kind of nice, tight little limit? <laughs> don't define neighbor too widely, please. And so, Jesus tells him a story. And of course, this is a story that's well known the Good Samaritan story, we've heard this before, many of us, and therein lies our trouble, right? Because we've heard it so many times that it's so easy for us to just go, oh, okay, yeah, okay, Good Samaritan, yeah, I get it. So I, I want to try to help us hear it the way the legal expert would have heard it this morning, because it's a very simple story when it comes down to it. So let's just look at this again and see if we can kind of hear it that way. A man 
any man perhaps, is on a trip down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he has the misfortune to be mugged by robbers who hung out in that barren area. Uh, the description of this road would not have surprised anyone that was listening to Jesus that, uh, that day. Uh, it was actually known as the way of blood. That was the colloquial term for it, largely because of the amount of blood that had been spilt by robbers on that road. And as you can see, this is a, a photo of it. Uh, there are some pretty lonely and bleak sections and you can see that in a lawless time, this is exactly the kind of place that robbers would hang out uh, and do their worst to people. So, uh, Jesus is uh, describing something that is kind of familiar to people, uh, although it's a story he's made up. So, the man in Jesus' story is stripped of his clothing and left for dead. Not long afterwards, a priest comes down the road and sees the victim lying there. So a priest was a religious professional. Uh, he worked at the temple. Uh, he was supposed to stand in the gap between God and man. And you would, you would have thought that this would, would be a man who, given that the law could be shrunk down to this love God, love your neighbor, uh, should actually be very alert to an opportunity to serve his fellow man, particularly one in desperate need, like the man sitting or lying by the side of the road. But, as a priest, he was also aware that he could become unclean if he came in contact with a dead body. And who knew if that victim might not die on him? He, he looks half dead as he looks at him, and he thinks hey, I don't want to get ritually unclean. And besides, um, what if it's a setup? What if he's just pretending to be injured? What if, he's, what if he's lying there, and when I get over close to him, he jumps up and mugs me? This could be dangerous for me. We don't know what's going through his head, but they are probably some of the thoughts that occur to him. And then he thinks, gosh, that, that guy's been attacked by robbers. There are robbers about. Robbers are scary people. I want to get out of here as quickly as I can. Otherwise, I could be lying there too. All these kinds of thoughts probably went through his brain. We don't know. But what we do know is the action that he took, which is to cross the road, walk over to the other side, walk blithely by and get out of there as fast as he can. Which, all, of course, leaves the man lying there, dying. Well, the next person down the road in Jesus' story is a Levite. And, of course, he's another religious professional. And he comes along the road, not far behind the priest, probably. He makes the same assessment and rushes on by without stopping. Next up is a Samaritan. Now, we hear the word Samaritan and we go, so, a Samaritan. But the expert in the law of that day would not have gone, oh, Samaritan. You see, Samaritans were despised by upright, God-fearing Jews. 
because they were not full Jews. They were actually a ragtag mix of various subject peoples who were forcibly relocated to Israel around the time of the exile, some from Iraq. Once they had arrived in Israel, they intermarried with some of the Jewish people that were there, and so they were, in Jewish sense, half-breeds. They weren't quite Jews, they weren't quite foreigners. They had some funny ideas about God, they'd even worked up their own kind of religious system to, to juxtapose against the Jewish religion. So they were suspect on both racial grounds and religious grounds. Heretics. They didn't actually believe that Jerusalem was the place where you had to meet God. And that was a big swipe at Jew the Jewish understanding of the temple and its centrality. So for Jesus to even mention the word Samaritan would have been like a punch on the nose to the expert in the law. A Samaritan? What's he going to do? But as Jesus tells the story, when the Samaritan arrives on the scene, he takes pity on the man. Now, the Greek word that Luke uses here for pity is the word splanchnizomai. My Greek's a bit hazy. But it's often translated compassion and has a literal meaning around a kind of tightening of the guts. It's like a visceral response that provokes action. And that response of compassion is actually the center word of this whole um, pericope, I think, is the, is the technical term for this, this story that Jesus is telling. So there's about 133 words in this section. And the 67th word is splanjitsnamai, or something like that. Right at the center is the key point. And that compassion is what marks out the Samaritan from the priest and the Levite. And because he has that compassion, because he's seized by it, he overcomes his own fear for his own safety, and he takes care of the injured man. Not only does he pour oil and wine on the wounds, think first century polysporin at that point, uh, he bandages him up and functions a bit like the complete paramedic by providing the ambulance his own donkey, to get the guy on board and get him down the road to an inn where he can take shelter and recover. He stays with him overnight, and then he splashes the cash to cover all the costs and pledges himself to return to cover the final bill when the man is fully well again. Well, it's a pretty simple story, as I've pointed out. Except, of course, that the hero is the anti-hero, in a sense, because 
for the expert in the law, this man is beyond the pale. So having told his story, Jesus asks the legal expert a simple question. Which of the three men was a neighbor to the victim of the robbers? Well, it's so simple a question that the legal expert really has no problem with it at all. Clearly, it's the one who showed mercy to him, he says. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. There it is. The word of God to us today. So what does it mean for us? And how does this inform our understanding of what neighboring is about? Well, the first thing I'd like to point out is that I think we have to notice here that neighbor is more a verb than a noun. Let me, let me I mean, it is a noun, I know that, but, but it's more of a verb than a noun in the way this story develops. The legal expert is looking for a tight definition of the noun neighbor. Jesus, by his story, switches it all around and really turns the tight definition pursuit into a very different question. And the question that Jesus seems to ask is, who neighbored? So it's not who is a neighbor out there, but who functions as a neighbor, who does the loving stuff that neighbors do. So while I may have lots of actual neighbors, the critical question is not who they are, it's who am I to them? Do I neighbor them or not? And of course, this do is the heart of this text, as we've already seen. After the, the expert in the law asks his question, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do. And after the story and Jesus' question, well, who did neighbor? Jesus says, do this. Go and do likewise. This is really about doing. You see, it's not enough for us to get in our heads to a point where we say, oh, my neighbors, I love them. They're such lovely people. I, I, I love them. Oh, oh it's good. I, it's not enough, right? I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't love our neighbors, and some of them are lovely people, I'm sure. But actually, that's not the point. Because Jesus, I think, is saying, well, are then you neighboring them? Are you extending yourself for them? And of course, that's a very different question from having warm fuzzies. 
The proof of our love for our neighbors is what we actually do to love them. Second thing that I think this passage points us to. We who these days, of course, live in the global village is that love transcends all boundaries. So we're often told that we need to think globally and act locally. And of course, that's true. But the global information that we are exposed to these days actually means for us that no one is off limits for us to neighbor. Right? If we know there are people out there in trouble and we have the potential to reach out to them, we can be neighbors to them. Now, of course, this is part of why we as a church community have moved in the direction of caring for refugees. The mere fact that they happen to be in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, wherever it is, is not really an issue. The question is, can we neighbor them? And that is why we have expended energy, time, love, care, uh, and effort to bring in neighbors uh, who are refugees. And I love that about this community. I think these are cool decisions, particularly in light of this story. Love transcends any kind of political, religious, ethnic boundaries that might be out there because that is the way the kingdom is set up. We are called to love. We are called to do. And for any of you that are visiting this morning, we have a tradition here in this uh, community of bringing in uh, refugee families. And we're en route for our next family. And uh, at Thanksgiving, I announced that we needed a bunch of money uh, to uh, undergird our application to bring in the Jumagul family from Afghanistan. And uh, some of you will have seen in your bulletin this morning, uh, or last week, I think, uh, that we are up to uh, within about 7,000 of all that's needed. So we have about 43,000 uh, of the 50,000 we need to look after that family for a year. I love that. You need to know that. I love that because that's doing, right? That's the stuff. That's the stuff we need to be doing to help and bless this family that we've been made aware of uh, that have been in terrible trouble and are still actually pretty deep in, in Delhi uh, as strangers in a strange land there. But uh, the Canadian government was in touch this week. They've reviewed our application. They've given us the thumbs up. We're good to go. And now it's just the waiting, the waiting to bring in uh, yeah, they have to be interviewed and then medical checks and all kinds of stuff that will happen in India. It's going to be long drawn out, but they will eventually come. And we, as, an, as a community, have an opportunity then to neighbor them, to love them. And I love that. That's terrific. So part of me says, well, there's more of that. And of course, there is more of that. We're coming up to the Christmas season. 
I know some of us can hardly believe it. We're pinching ourselves and going, how come it's November already? But uh, Christmas brings lots of opportunities for us. So tomorrow night we have our community meal where we welcome in various families that uh, have various challenges. And we're going to be uh, meeting some new families there, we think, uh, who are Kurdish refugees. And then our Meet the Need team are working on hampers. And we're hoping that we can connect those hampers to people in need in our city as part of our community effort on neighboring. To say, hey, it matters. It matters that families feel cared for at Christmas time particularly. And we can be part of that. And I love the fact that we can do that. And if you know of a family or a situation, an individual, somebody uh, who would really appreciate a hamper, all you have to do is contact Claire Westlake in about the next 10 days. We'll not, sorry, Claire, Claire, sorry, Claire Tweedale, sorry, sorry, Claire. Uh, and, and, we'll, and we'll get that right. Okay, and that's practical care out of which uh, hopefully we can build relationship to love and to bless. This is neighboring on a communal level. But there's also this neighboring on an individual level. And I know many of you here are experts at this stuff. You're learning, you're growing in your ability to actually neighbor. And I would say from this story that this neighboring stuff is not just a kind of peripheral nice thing that we need to do. The suggestion, I think, if the expert in the law is right, is that our eternal destiny may be caught up with our ability to actually neighbor. You know, it's really fine to love God. But the proof of the pudding is in the loving of our neighbors. That's where the rubber hits the road. And so as we move into this Christmas season as a community, Advent starts in two weeks' time. The thought, the question, the challenge from this passage this morning is, who am I neighboring? And maybe we need to go back and have a conversation with the Lord about that and say, okay, Lord, I, I want to get more into this because you're into this. And you tell me in your word here that doing this is important. May we as individuals and the wider community figure out how to neighbor well and learn how the love of God in our hearts can transcend all boundaries as we seek to love him and love our neighbors. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your stories poke us and prod us uh, in deep places of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for coming and showing us the way to live and teaching us uh, about how to love our neighbors Lord, thank you for all the efforts that are being made to love neighbors through this community and through individuals in this community. Lord, we pray that you would stir us up to be a community that loves 
not just in our hearts, but in our actions, in our words. Lord, that there would be a synthesis of who we are, that your love would be made real through what we do for you to love our neighbors. Teach us how to do this without guilt, but because you have set our hearts free to love and bless the other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now celebrate our communion with God and the love of Jesus Christ. And as we share in the Lord's Supper together, we remember that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead 